to the book of Ephesians, and we'll be in chapter 5. All right, so we're finally jumping back into the book of Ephesians this morning. We have been on a hiatus from it uh, since May, but we started Ephesians a year ago. So it's high time we we finish it off, right? Um, And I promise you we will finish it before December of this year. And uh, so we're going to start a new sermon series this morning, and it's called Redeemed Vocation, How Christ Reshapes Society. And this morning, we're looking at marriage in light of Christ. So what I don't want, though, is for this sermon to be sort of a topical sermon on marriage that's divorced from the context of the book of Ephesians. Did you, did you hear my pun there? Um, because because this, this is a letter. We're, we're jumping back into a letter, and we need to know what has been covered so far. And so we do have a little bit of work to do. Um, So we're going to do that, but we're going to read today's passage first. Then we'll do the work of placing it in the context of what Paul has been talking about here in this letter. And then we can dive into our passage more deeply this morning. So we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. And our passage today starts in verse 22 until verse 30. But we're actually going to back up just a few verses and start in verse 15 of chapter 5. All right, let's read it. Paul writes, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the letter of Ephesians written by Paul, and we just, we want to extract what you have for us this morning. So Holy Spirit, please speak through your word this morning directly to our hearts, And help us to give your word a chance. Lord, may it speak deeply and cut what needs to be cut out. And 
and encourage what needs to be encouraged and build up what needs to be built up. And so we give it to you this morning. Please speak in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're just going to zoom out for a minute, and then we'll get back into this passage. So Ephesians. There's three themes that run through the entire book. These are power, reconciliation, and worship. So first, power. In chapter 1, Paul opened by praying for the Ephesian church to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And all the way through the letter, and then in chapter 6, he instructs us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So God's power. Second, reconciliation. In chapter 1, God, God tells us that his plan is to unite all things in Christ, who has broken down the walls of hostility that existed between people groups, making us all one in Christ. He did that. So reconciliation. And third, worship. Right off the bat in chapter 1, after the initial high, Paul breaks into a worship and prayer session. And he just keeps going and going and going, blessing God, praying for the Ephesian church. He describes the church as being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, the very temple of God. So if you get anything out of the book of Ephesians, may it be a recognition of God's power in your life to raise you up with Christ, reconciling you both to himself and to others, which leads to a lifelong response of worship. But this is not just an individualistic thing. It's not just for us single-person Christians to take and run with it. Ephesians is a book about the church, God's power in creating the church, God's reconciliation in including a diversity of people groups in the church, and the church becoming the very dwelling place of God, a holy temple where God's glory shines brightly to a watching world. So that's Ephesians. And last week, we talked about how our lead pastor, Jesus, has us walking on paths of righteousness for his glory. And right here, as we dive into Ephesians chapter 5, we're in the second half of the book, which is typically the, okay, now you know what Christ has done, now how do I walk in it? And Paul is in the middle of teaching this church just how to do that. Our last sermon series in Ephesians did the first half of chapter 5, and it was called Learning How to Walk. We learned how to walk in love. We learned how to walk in light. Paul calls it, and walk in wisdom, and then finally, walking by the Spirit. Just a little warning here, we're going to get a little grammar, grammar nerdy quick, because it's important, because we got to do that so we know exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 5. So the reason I had us start our passage today in verse 15 it's because the passage that we're going to dive into, the passage on wives and husbands, is directly linked to verse 15. It's linked to Paul's instruction here to look carefully how you walk. He finishes his instructions on how to walk there in verse 18 when he says, be filled with the Spirit. That is how you walk. So, but how does that connect us to 
our passage. How does that apply to wives submitting to your husbands as to the Lord in verse 22? Let me tell you. In the Greek that Paul uses here, be filled with the Spirit is the last independent verb that Paul uses in this paragraph. What that means is all the verbs that follow that, that verb modify be filled. So what Paul is saying is be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? How does that manifest? When, when they say, hey, Paul, how do we walk that out? How do we show that we're filled with the Spirit as the church? And know what he says? He says it looks like, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So going back to the theme of worship in Ephesians, what does it look like for the Christian community to live out its destiny as being the very temple of God? What does being filled with the Spirit look like in Christian community? It looks like all those things. And so when Paul finishes his statement on how does it look to be filled with the Spirit as a community, he finishes it with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ there in verse 21. Okay, we're getting there. So as soon as he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul does something, and he, does, he actually does two things. He switches gears, but he also continues the exact same thought. Stay with me, okay? The reason I say he continues the same thought is because the verb submit is not actually in verse 22. What it literally says is, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. It doesn't even say submit. It assumes it. it uh, is Paul saying that wives should submit themselves to their own husbands? Yes. But it's in the context of this overall mutual submission that is occurring in this whole community. There is a, a posture of mutual deference, yielding, uh, t- uh, caring about other people's needs before my own that is happening in the church community at large. And then Paul switches gears. So the reason I say he switches gears here is because he starts something new. And what he's starting is he's starting to address and begin what's called a household code. So way back in ancient times, uh, ancient philosophical writers created these household codes that actually address these same exact categories of people. First, wives and husbands. Second, children and parents. And third, slaves and masters. And that was employment at the time. But we're going to get to that, don't worry, in a couple weeks. So the reason for these household codes in ancient times was that it was recognized that these, these everyday relationships were the make-or-break units of the empire, whether it's Greek empire, Roman empire. And if those in authority could instruct these basic and important relationships, then they could influence the entire society. This is where, this is the building block of society, the family and employment. And if we can, if we can get in there, then we can get in everywhere. That was the, the ancient thought. Aristotle said it. He, he, and he used these same categories. 
And so finally, we arrive at our sermon series for the month, Redeemed Vocation, How Christ Reshapes Society. So for the next month, we will look at Paul's instructions to these high-stakes relationships, our, our family relationships, our employment relationships. And what will we see? Will we see Paul just giving in to the social norms of the day? No. In fact, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Paul gives equality and dignity to those with lesser social standing, and he reminds those with higher social standing that they are accountable to God. So today, we're looking at the first category of people mentioned, husbands and wives. So what should marriage look like in light of Christ? So just a heads up, church family. A couple weeks ago, I told you that as I step into this role, I'm going to need a lot of grace. And it's passages like these that that applies. So if I offend anyone this morning, just know it's unintentional. Okay? (laughs) But here it goes. So many of you know that I'm a nurse. And in the medical field, a bunch of you are in the medical field, at each facility or each hospital, we have things called policies and procedures. These are basically the Bible for us as far as what we do on our, in our daily tasks. And they describe, they, they detail how to do pretty much everything that a nurse might have to do. You can look it up. What's the policy say? What's the, what's the steps one through ten? Whether it's putting in an IV or a breathing tube or how to give a sponge bath, it's all in there. It's all detailed out. And much of the reason why these policies and procedures exist is because sometimes nurses forget how to do stuff and we need to be refreshed. How do you give a sponge bath? I don't recommend giving a sponge bath unless you're a nurse or a, anyway, sorry. But an even even more important reason for these policies and procedures is actually to cover our butts. It's if if we do everything according to the policy, but things go wrong, we're kind of covered because that was hospital policy. So there's a little bit of that. And so if we follow that, especially during a high-stakes procedure, then we're less likely to kind of riff and do our own thing, which is good, especially if you're putting in a breathing tube or something high-stakes, right? And so one time I was talking with some uh, colleagues and we were talking about a common procedure that a lot of us do on a daily basis. And I was like, well, I'm going to pull up the policy. What what does the policy say? So I pulled out the policy and I I read it. And one of my coworkers then asked me in a somewhat condescending tone, Nick, uh, well, what's your opinion on how we should do the procedure? And I, I was like, I have no opinion. I just do what the policy says. And he was like, oh, okay. And this, granted, the policy is right, just so you know. <laughs> and so when I said that, it was like, it was almost, it was almost like a mic drop moment. Um, I, I don't have an opinion, you know. It's, it's not my place to have an opinion on how to put a breathing tube in. I just follow how you're supposed to do it. And that was what I would tell any Christian who, who is drawn or, or tempted to stray from what the Bible has to say on a given topic, like marriage. I don't have an opinion. I just do and teach what seems like the most faithful reading of the text. 
Hopefully that is where we'll end up today with this passage. And of course, we need to examine the culture. We, we need to see what was going on in that culture at that time and try to compare and try to decipher the principle of what God's word is saying to us. But once we scrape away some of those cobwebs, this passage teaches us a lot about marriage in light of Christ. And for both husbands and wives, it tells us what to do. It tells us why we're doing it, and it tells us how to do it. But before we dive into each verse here in 22 to 30, let's talk about this passage as a whole. This is the longest passage in the New Testament that talks about the role relationships of husbands and wives in marriage. And there are similar instructions in multiple passages across the New Testament, both from Paul and Peter, but none are this long and none dive as deeply as this one does into the, Christ, they call it a Christological significance of marriage, which basically just means marriage is a picture of the gospel. And this is the passage that dives the deepest. Secondly, in other household codes in this time period, only the husbands are addressed. Paul not only here addresses wives, but he addresses them first. And this pattern continues when he addresses children and slaves. None of the other household codes in this time addressed the lesser of the two social categories. So Paul is countercultural from the start here. And when we read a passage like this, we often assume that Paul or whatever author is regurgitating a custom from his own time. That is not the case here. Even though Paul is using a common framework with this household code, these instructions he gives to husbands and wives are unlike anything written in his day. Of course, for most families in this time period, the husband was identified as the leader of the home. That was, that was kind of the generic understanding. But in no household code from this era do we find the husband being instructed to love his wife. Isn't that, isn't that sad? <laughs> but Paul, that's, that's the only thing he says to the husbands, is love your wives. Most of the time in these other household codes and in the ancient times, it was control your wives, subdue them, keep them in line, something like that. And so Paul just completely rejects that. But on the flip side... In the first century, there was a movement in the Roman Empire especially for wealthy wives to cast off the authority of their husbands and live lives of independence and self-expression. All that is to say, when Paul wrote this household code to the Ephesian church, there were at least two extremes. Families with a tyrannical, domineering husband and families with a free-spirited decadent, independent wife who defied her husband. Now, this doesn't really sound all that different from our current American cultural extremes. And Paul's instructions here are countercultural to their core, and they cut across the grain of both extremes. We're almost ready to dive in, I promise. Husbands here get double the exhortation, double the verses, double the application. It's as if Paul really wants husbands to get it. 
And this is due to, for Paul, the God-given authority and, more importantly, responsibility that is laid upon husbands. There's no explaining that away. But let's see if we can't learn more from this, the actual passage, shall we? But before we do, if you're single today, I want you to keep listening. Why? A few reasons. First, we married couples who are seeking to successfully and sacrificially love our spouses, we need you single people to speak into our marriages. We need you. That's why this address is in the context of this community-wide letter. Is We married couples, we need you. We need help. Marriage is hard. Second, there's a possibility that, possibility that you will be married someday. So pay attention, especially you single men. Third, as we'll unpack more next week, marriage is a living picture of what Jesus has done for his church, his bride. All marriages are broken in some way. And many of you were raised in homes of broken marriages or have experienced a, bro a severely broken marriage yourself. The brokenness displays the glory of what's to come. And it's the same with your yearnings as a single person. If you yearn for marriage, if, if that's something you desire, there's a glory that's to come, and your yearnings for it dis also display that glory that's to come. The brokenness displays the glory. The yearning displays the glory. We are all yearning for that day. And so we all picture it in some way. All right, let's dive in. Verses 22 to 24. Let's reread those. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. Wives are instructed here to the what, the why, and the how. What are they instructed here for? Submission to their own husbands. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. How? As to the Lord. Or as the church submits to Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't root this instruction in what's right in the culture, but in the very relationship of Jesus with the church. So this instruction is acultural. It applies across time and culture to all Christian marriages. And what is it? What does submission mean here? Well, firstly, it says wives should submit to their own husbands. It does not say, please listen closely, it does not say women should submit to men. Okay? It says wives should submit to their own husbands. That's it. Second, notice Paul doesn't say obey. And the reason I bring that up is because he actually does say obey to children. And he does say obey to slaves later in chapter 6. Don't worry, we're going to get there. But here, he does not say obey. He says submit. So what's the difference? So Paul addresses the wives first and directly, which again was 100% countercultural in that time. 
and he gives them a say in the matter. For Paul, a wife, unlike these other ancient Near East household codes, a wife is not a person to be directed and dominated. He asks the wives to, of their own will, place themselves under their husband's authority and leadership. So submission is a deferring. It is a willful deferring. It is a yielding. It is a willingness to receive leadership. Submission is letting one's husband love you like he is supposed to. And so in providing a husband for a wife, God is trying to give her someone who will gently, lovingly, sacrificially lead, care for, protect, and provide for her. Notice, in these three verses, there is very little, if any, concrete application. As in, what does this look like in a day-to-day sense? Okay, what does that mean for my wife and I today and tomorrow? Paul does not do that. He doesn't go there. He goes, he goes way deeper and way broader. He doesn't say women can't or shouldn't pursue their dreams, be leaders in their home, be leaders in their church, work outside the home, or lead in any institution or government. He doesn't give any actual application. It is completely a heart posture. That's the what. So the why. Paul says, because, in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So according to Paul, marriage between a husband and a wife is a living picture of the gospel. And in God's good design, this is how married couples live out that picture. So how, he says, should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And then he, he kind of mirrors it and completes it by saying, wives should submit in everything to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's the how. So in your Christian walk, how do you respond to the leading of Jesus? When he gently invites you on a path that will bring you joy and bring you joy and God glory, how do you respond? When your husband is faithfully pursuing Jesus and senses a direction coming from him, how do you, or do you respond in the same way? Are you receptive to that guidance? And there in verse 24, Paul says, and this, this hurts. He says, in everything. And I, I just want to take a minute to explain that. There are times in which submitting to one's husband would absolutely not be what you're supposed to do. If he is seeking enablement of sin or asking you to stray from one of God's commands or subjecting you to any form of abuse, you are not to submit to him full stop. By in everything, Paul means within a healthy marriage, there shouldn't be little areas of your life that you keep off limits to your husband. If marriage is a one-flesh union, then that's exactly what's called for. All right, moving on. Verses 25 to 30, let's get into the husbands. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. All right, so the what, the why, and the how for husbands. What are husbands commanded to do here? Love their wives. What's the why? Why should they do this? Well, the why has already been stated back in verse 23 when Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So this marriage relationship is a living testimony of the goodness of God towards people. That is a big responsibility. Maybe that's why Paul needs to give husbands a lot more direction than the wives. Again, there's double the amount of exhortation given to us husbands. So how? Interestingly, Paul gives the husbands two ways of doing this. He says in verse 25, uh, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the second way Paul gives husbands to love their wives is in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. It's almost as if Paul can tell the husbands are going to have a tough time with this. And so he gives them two ways to think about it. So husbands are called to love their wives. And he says it over and over and over. What kind of love is this? And you might have guessed the word is the word for sacrificial love, agape. So how? How can they do this? How can we do this? So firstly, Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, this was and remains the ultimate example of sacrificial love ever displayed in human history. And Paul gets like swept up in it. And we see that in verse 26 and 27. He just, he just keeps going. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We'll look more closely at this next week when we talk about not marriage in light of Christ, but Christ in light of marriage. But for now, just know that Paul is blowing his own mind thinking about this living picture. He's just like, whoa, this is a flesh and blood illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he just can't stop talking about it. Marriage is a living picture that points all of us to that reality. So husbands, when Paul says husbands are the head of, the, of their wives, one indication there is that husbands are called to lead. But how are they to lead? Well, how did Christ lead? They are to lead in love. They are to set aside their own wills and take up the interest of others. They are to sacrifice their own wants for the sake of the other. And it should be painful. It should be hard. You remember Jesus in the garden? 
What he did for us was painful and hard. Husbands are called to that same degree of sacrifice. Husbands are called to die for their wives, but not just in the big sense of heroically taking a bullet for my wife, but in the little ways, every day, for the rest of our lives. We're called to pursue God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength for the sake of the health and flourishing of your wife, of your family. So if you're a single man in this church and you want to be married, wow, this is the bar. It's set pretty high. And it's set high for a reason. Being married is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the selfish. It's not for the lustful. It's not for those who disrespect women. But thank God he empowers us husbands by his spirit to be able to even consider this calling. Because otherwise, without Jesus, we have not much hope for success. Very regularly, I pray for the love I need to love Anna like this. Because I do not have it. I have to receive it. Without God helping me, I got no chance. And then more than that, Paul, in verse 28, he gives husbands, he gives us another more concrete how. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Do you take care of your own needs? Of your, of your feet if they're aching, if their hands, if they hurt, of your tummy aches? Yeah, you do. You don't even have to think about it. It's automatic. Paul calls husbands to be so attuned to the needs of their wives that tenderly taking care of their needs is automatic. And of course, even this instruction is tied to Jesus. We are members of his body, and he nourishes and cherishes us. So we husbands are called to do the same for our wives. There, Paul borrows wording from Leviticus and Jesus when he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, where does he get that? From that second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your closest neighbor. And if you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, then how much more your wife, your one flesh partner, So I mentioned Paul doesn't give much kind of day-to-day application here. He, he reaches way, way up into the stars, and he says marriage is like Jesus in the church. He doesn't give an ideological uh, 1950s America prescription. He, he goes way bigger than that. And so externally, from a from a, someone watching you know, your family function standpoint, if this is done right, it's actually hard to tell the difference. It's hard to tell the difference between submission for wives and sacrificial love for husbands. They look very similar. If you were to ask my wife, who is the spiritual leader of our family, she would readily tell you that it's me. But if you were to watch our family operate, on a day-to-day basis, you'd be hard-pressed to differentiate between my leadership and hers. 
She is constantly encouraging me, exhorting me, inspiring me, leading by example, etc. So sure, the buck stops with me. I have this responsibility that God has given me, and I hold it with fear and trembling. But that's more of a, of a weight than an authority to wield. It's a weight of responsibility. It's like deep breath. God has given you something to do, and it, it's going to hurt. And it's going to be hard, and you're going to need help. It's not an authority to wield at my leisure as the man of the house. And if you struggle with this posture that Paul is describing here, I get it. It's, it's countercultural. It's countercultural to our modern American egalitarian sensibilities. And if you're a husband, what I would encourage you is to give it a go. Be the leader, spiritually. Pursue God with more energy than you ever have. Lay down your desires and your will on behalf of your wife. Don't be a jerk. See if your wife doesn't really appreciate that. And if you're a wife who struggles with this posture, I get it. I'm confident the reason why we bristle so much at this is because husbands throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, have screwed this up. We've gotten this so wrong. The temptation to lord our authority and pursue our own desires at our wives' and our families' expense has been the ruin of many marriages and many families. But if you, as a husband, are willing to lead the charge in pursuing Jesus, then that's what I'd say to you. Give it a go. See if God doesn't bless it. And like I said before, externally, when this is done right, this is, it's hard to tell what's really going on. But if God is good, and this is God's idea, then it's worth giving a try. Because really, and we're going to get into this next week, we get to reflect on this. If we get it right, then the gospel gets to be displayed in high definition before a watching and desperate world in need of the Savior who gave himself up for us. So as we close this morning, as we pray, as we worship, it kind of goes back to that Psalm 62, trust. When Jesus was saying some pretty strange things in John chapter 5, 6. People were leaving him in droves. He said, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to, you know, people were like, okay, have, have I been following this crazy guy? And then they leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter, you know, he says dumb things a lot, but he didn't say anything dumb this time. He said, where, would, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so, we can take this passage and we can toss it out, but we'd be doing ourselves a disservice because this is God's word. And this is where he's leading us. This is an ideal situation. This is an archetype picture. None of us is going to experience the full perfection of what Paul is talking about. But we can be led in that direction. 
We can pursue that path. We can ask God for help to bring us to that point. And we can, we can practice in, in, amongst ourselves. We can look at our sisters and treat them with Jesus-like deference and sacrifice and love. And, and so we get to do that. And we can entrust the rest to the God who is trustworthy and who has given us his word. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for your word. Even though sometimes we, we don't know what to do with it and we, we, we have a hard time putting it in our, in our categories, Lord, that we've, that we've been given or we've constructed. Lord, help us to trust your word. Help us to trust you. Help us as husbands to lay down our lives for our wives. Help us as wives to submit to our husbands as they are led by you in love. And for the rest of us, Lord, who aren't married, Lord, give us wisdom as we speak into the marriages that are around us. Recognizing that marriage as an institution is not just a human institution. It was created by you from day one. And so it's good. And so give us wisdom as a church body as we, as we exhort and address one another, giving thanks for one another and submit to one another. Help us to speak words of encouragement and building up of the marriages and the families in our own body. Lord, help us not to leave each other behind. Wherever we're at, Lord, you want to speak. And thank you for your spirit that is working mightily in our midst. Please bless this time of worship, Lord, as we just cast our cares and our complete selves upon you and fellowship after. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.